Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. It seems like there are satellites being launched weekly from large communication satellites to clusters of smaller spacecraft like Starlink and OneWeb, CubeSats, and even microsatellites. And one of the things that nearly all of these and other spacecraft have in common is a need for propulsion, stabilization, and station keeping once they're in orbit. And that means thrusters. My guest on this edition of the Xterra podcast is Bo Jarvis the CEO of Phase 4, a company specializing in next-generation electric propulsion for small satellites. And Bo, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Happy to be here. Great to have you. Let's talk, first of, uh, first of all, just about Phase 4 and, and what it does. Sure. Uh, you know, Phase 4 started about five years ago uh, with the idea that uh, we were going to be building the next generation of in-space mobility. And that's all centered around our core technology, and that is the radio frequency thruster or the RF thruster. Uh, so that thruster creates plasma in a very different way than legacy systems do. Uh, I can happy to expand on that if you well, like. That That is actually my, my next question is to just talk about what essentially an RF thruster is. How is it different? from a legacy thruster. Yeah, so legacy thrusters like Hall Effect thrusters, for example, uh, they work very well. You know, they were uh, invented in the Soviet Union during the Cold War and have been, you know, modified and optimized for the past 50 plus years. Um, but there's always been this thought within the aerospace world of, you know, could we use radio frequency to excite a gas or the propellant and convert that to the fourth phase of matter, uh, which is plasma, hence the name phase four, um, because it, it basically simplifies the architecture and then opens up the opportunity to use other types of propellants that either are lower cost or allow you to do different sorts of missions. So in fact, um, early on in the aerospace industry, there have been uh, multiple attempts at building a, a cathodeless radio frequency based thruster. And frankly, none of those worked very well. So then, then there was this kind of, I think, uh, you know, tribal knowledge within the community that, well, we tried it, it didn't work. Um, but when phase four started, we actually were fortunate enough to have um, some plasma physicists that don't come from the aerospace community. Uh, they come from the plasma processing world where radio frequency plasmas are used quite frequently to make, um, you know, to aid in manufacturing of circuit boards, silicon wafers, things like that. Um, and those plasmas uh, frequently use very um, caustic materials to create uh, as, as fuel or as kind of the source for the plasma. Um, so our R&D team approached it in a very different way. And what we saw early on was that we could create a meaningful amount of thrust and ISP using relatively low frequency. So we're talking about uh, frequencies in the range of five to 10 megahertz. So when you think, sometimes when people think of radio frequency thruster, they think, oh, this thing is going to interfere with, you know, my up or down link communications. But at those frequencies, there's really nothing that is going either, you know, sending or, or being uh, received from the spacecraft. So it's a very safe frequency to operate from so basically what we do is we have an RF element that is actually wrapped inside of the plasma liner of the thruster. Um, so we, we use that RF element to excite 
any neutral gas. And once that gas is excited to a certain point, it becomes a plasma. Plasmas are in some ways very energetic gases. And so it wants to expand in every direction. And then we use magnetic fields once we create the plasma to force it out the back of the thruster that creates the thrust that allows us to you know, do uh, orbit raising for a spacecraft or station keeping or deorbiting. So that's generally how the RF thruster works. You know, when you talk about radio frequency thruster, and every time you say something like radio frequency, they think about their radio, mm-hmm. um, that they listen to music or talk or whatever. And and how does that technology translate into something like spacecraft propulsion? And, and kind of where was that leap? Obviously, radio technology has been around for a long time. So where was that leap from using it for communication to something like a spacecraft thruster? Yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of the space industry has the consumer electronics industries to thank for a number of advancements. You know, for example, when I was at Planet Labs, you know, a lot of what Planet was able to do in the early days with CubeSats was uh, thanks in a large part due to, you know, the miniaturization of electronics for things like tablets and smartphones. And same can be said for what we've been able to do at phase four. So, um, the, the mechanism that we use to excite a propellant and convert it to a plasma is not that dissimilar from a charging mat for your smartphone. And those use radio frequencies basically to recharge your battery. Um, as you know, you know those, those are also miniaturized devices. Um, so the benefits actually extend out into space because every, you know, every gram, every kilogram is important when you're building a spacecraft because, you know, the heavier your, your system is, the more it's going to cost to launch. So from our standpoint, we can create, um, today we're building our second product, Maxwell Block 2. Uh, we can create a 500 watt thruster or a 500 watt propulsion system with electronics that are very small, still, you know, under a kilogram, uh, which that just didn't exist, you know, five plus years ago. So, um, you know, we have, again, like I said, a lot of what's advancements in electronics can be said for RF devices. And that kind of points back to the kind of the consumer electronics industry slash smartphone industry. Did, Did I hear you correctly when you said you're using frequencies in the 10 megahertz range? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we typically operate between five to ten megahertz, and we'll mm-hmm. we we can optimize for different sorts of propellants. So we might be lower, slightly lower than that, or slightly higher than that. Um, but actually, early on, you know, we we approached the FCC as we were developing the technology to see, you know, do we need a license to operate this in space because it is a radio frequency? And they basically said, you know, at those frequencies, nobody's really doing anything, so they right. they actually didn't require us to get a license. Um, and we do have you know customers that are operating our systems in space. And, you know, they don't experience any sort of uh, radio frequency interference when our systems are working. So what are the biggest advantages of using an electric uh, thruster for propulsion for satellites and spacecraft as opposed to the chemical thrusters? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not one of these partisans that said, you know, this is our technology is the only propulsion technology you should ever use, period. Mm -hmm. That's that's a little naive and silly, in my opinion. You know, different different sorts of missions require different types of propellants and different types of propulsion. So, for example, you know, if you want to get to space, you need chemical propul- propulsion in a rocket to allow you to escape Earth's right. gravities and get to space, right? Electric prop- propulsion, as it stands today, is never going to produce enough thrust to allow you to do that. However, once you're on orbit, depending on what your mission is requires, you have you know you have options between chemical pr- propulsion and electric propulsion. So if I'm if I need to move very, very fast and, and kind of like high thrust, quick maneuverability is the main requirement for my mission, then I'm going to be using chemical propulsion each and every time. However, if I'm a, you know, a small satellite 
let's say I'm a SAR satellite or I am an Earth observation satellite and I want to be orbiting the planet for five to seven years, then I need something that allows me to, yes, move my satellite, so a moderate amount of thrust, but also something that's very efficient, basically high miles per gallon is a way to think about it. Right. And that's where electric propulsion is optimal. It's much more efficient than chemical propulsion. Lower thrust, yes, but higher efficiency. So, you know, depending on your mission, electric propulsion can be a very good fit. And, you know, the fact that, you know, I think the last time I looked, 80 plus percent of what's going up into space is in the form of small satellites. Nearly all of those small satellites today are using electric propulsion because it is the right propulsion for a low Earth orbit mission for a period of, you know, let's call it five to seven years. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you kind of got into all this. Yeah, my background is is a little strange. I don't I don't have an aerospace degree. Um, in fact, I I have a biology and an environmental management degree. Um, okay. So I didn't really get didn't uh, you know I always liked space. You know, one of my first memories from childhood was you know learning about Skylab, and of course when Skylab was re-entering, there was a lot of excitement about oh you know <laughs> where is it going to re-enter. Right. Um, so I was always interested in space, but I you know when I got into my master's degree and was working on my master's thesis. Um, uh, I was I was having to do these large area maps and basically identify landscape change over time. And what what we found was we could use the Landsat program, the data generated from those satellites, to allow us to look at large landscape changes over decades of time. Because at that point, you know, landscape the Landsat program started in the '70s and still continues today. So you have this really rich archive of data that allows you to see, you know, kind of how the Earth has evolved and changed over decades of time. And that's what really got me excited about using, you know space-based capabilities to inform what's happening on the earth and to manage things like the environment and agriculture and so on. Um, so that's what kind of started my path down the road of getting into space. And then, you know, in terms of startup space, I started at Planet about nine years ago. Mm -hmm. I was really excited by Planet's mission and they, they continue to do really interesting things today. And since that time, you know, the, the new space ecosystem has really evolved. Did that environmental background kind of to dovetail into what you're doing with the the more green propellants at this point in your career? Um, maybe, maybe subconsciously, um, you know, I think, <laughs> I think for us, you know, when we look at different types of propellants, it's more of a, of a pragmatic thing, you know, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's a little alarming, for example, that so much of the industry um, is in the, in terms of electric propulsion is dependent upon a supply chain that exists largely outside of the US and isn't secure by any means, right? So when you're talking about US government, you know, defense um, space missions, we really are, lo are looking at propellants that can be sourced either directly in the US or directly by our allies that are secure and that are, you know, ideally much lower cost. Uh, also, yes, when it comes to green propellant, um, I, you know, I, I would rather use a, a safe propellant for a large constellation of satellites than one that is highly toxic. So, of course, we want to be optimized to work with safer propellants as well. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the yeah. program as well. Uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the Hall Effect thrusters, and those have been around since the 1960s and 70s. How is what you're doing with the RF thrusters now different to what they did with the Hall Effect thrusters uh, back before the turn of the century? Yeah, you know, it, I like to think of of what we're doing is we're kind of the the pirate ship approach to to developing new technology versus what the Hall Effect thrusters did, and I, and I'll explain by what I mean by that. So Hall Effect thrusters are you know extremely well understood at this point because they've been around for so long and they've been developed you know through national labs through nation states, um, so they're they're 
you know, they're pristinely optimized for, you know, different sorts of power classes and different missions. Um, basically, we had to do this, you know, with venture capital, um, which mm -hmm. is the exciting thing about, you know, venture capital in space is that you can do things that normally take decades and you can compress that timeline into a matter of, you know, months and years. Um, so, like I said, our technology really in any sort of meaningful form has only been around for about five years. And in that time, we've basically taking, taken the RF tech thruster tech technology from, yeah, this might work to, oh, you know, this, this is on par in terms of performance with what Hall Effect thrusters do today. And we still have all this green space in front of us in terms of developing it and optimizing it for higher power, you know, so for larger clashes of satellites or different missions. Um, so it's really exciting. And that's, you know, that's kind of the story of, of phase four is we did, you know, this, this massive development with a very small team and a really compressed timeline. And, you know, we're just getting started. What about uh, what are some of the missions that you're currently flying on? So right now, uh, our first customers are flying our Maxwell engine on Earth observation missions, uh, okay. that like uh, SAR uh, synthetic aperture aperture radar satellites. I'm talking with Bo Jarvis of Phase Four on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click on subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Uh, Bo, you recently made news when you became the first company to use the Air Force Research Lab's new Ascent Green Fuel. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Yeah. So, you know, the, the Air Force Research Laboratory has been working uh, and developing this Ascent propellant for uh, a couple of decades now. I think it's, it's approaching 20 years. Um, the idea behind Ascent is that it is a, uh, a green alternative to hydrazine. You know, hydrazine has been kind of the, the primary propellant of choice for particularly like, you know, large defense satellites and things like that because it is it performs so well from a chemical propellant standpoint. Um, obviously, the downside of hydrazine is that if you are exposed to it, you are also dead. So it's, it's a very, <laughs> very toxic material. Um, and, you know, I think as the, the Air Force and now Space Force are looking at their new architecture, you know, just like the commercial industry has gone from these large, you know, geo satellites to smaller satellites in LEO, a lot of the, the government missions are, are going to be doing similar things. So, you know, it's one thing to look about, to think about the risk of hydrazine if you're fueling one satellite, right? But what about if you have to fuel 10, 20, 30 or more satellites, right? So I think, you know, what the Air Force and Space Force understand is they need something that, you know, is going to be safer than hydrazine, but also performs as well. Uh, furthermore, the, uh, the, other, the other thing that follows when you work with smaller satellites is obviously you have less volume inside your spacecraft for things like propulsion systems, right? So, um, you know, historically on large satellites, oftentimes you would have two independent propulsion systems. You'd have a chemical system, oftentimes hydrazine based, and then you have an electric propulsion system, oftentimes a Hall effect thrusters. And those would be used in different phases of the mission, right? So the chemical system would be used to get the, the spacecraft to station as quickly as possible with a high thrust maneuver. And then once the spacecraft was on orbit, it would switch over to the electric propulsion system and use that for station keeping, phasing, those sorts of things. But now that you're dealing with a much smaller volume, it's very difficult to put two independent propulsion systems into that and your payload and your batteries and everything else that you need in that smaller volume, right? So there's a concept um, out there that's been around for years um, called multi-mode, which is, mm -hmm. is it possible to have a propulsion system that has a single propellant, you know, single electronics, single avionics, but has two modes? It has a high thrust chemical mode uh, where it combusts the propellant. Um, 
and it has a high efficiency electric mode where it converts that propellant to a plasma for high efficiency maneuvers. So that's really the, the genesis of the ascent program that we've been working on with the government. Um, and actually what you see behind me is, is a, a, an image of one of the first ascent based plasmas that we were able to generate. Uh, and so that's, that's very exciting, right? So that if you have the capability of kind of both the best of both worlds in a single propulsion system on your spacecraft, there's a number of things you can do, right? You can get to station really fast. You can, right. you can dodge debris really fast, but you also don't use all your fuel. So you can keep your mission lifetime at the target length, five, seven, whatever, however many years you want to be on orbit. Um, so it's, it, there's a lot of national security implications for multimode, but I also think there's some really exciting commercial implications for multimode propulsion as well. I want to get down into the weeds just a little bit because I know your thrusters use iodine instead of uh, oxygen and, and krypton. Uh, no, uh, uh, instead yeah. of xenon and krypton. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so, so why what is the advantage of using iodine as opposed to those other elements? Yeah, and to clarify, so our first our first engine that we've been delivering to customers uh, also uses these noble gases. So that's that's kind of the interesting th thing about our thruster and the core technology is that we call it inherently propellant agnostic. So we can use xenon and krypton. Uh, we can also use iodine. Um, xenon is has been historically the propellant of or the you know the gas slash propellant of choice for traditional electric propulsion systems because it if you remember back from either your high school or college chemistry periodic table a chart xenon is a noble gas which means it doesn't react with other materials um, so it's safe for these legacy architectures like hall effect thrusters and it's pretty heavy so a heavier molecule is going to produce uh, more thrust when it becomes a plasma um, the downside of xenon and krypton, and by the way, both of those are, they come from the same source. So a lot of folks will say, well, if xenon becomes too expensive, I'll just use krypton, which is about 20% the cost of xenon. Mm -hmm. True, but that the supply chain is the same. So if, if, <laughs> if you can't get xenon, you're probably not going to get krypton either in many right. cases. Um, like I said, the downside is cost. So um, after the, the war in Ukraine erupted back in February, we started to see a really significant spike in the price of xenon. Uh, before that, xenon was on the order of five to $7,000 per kilogram, still very expensive. But over the, uh, through the summer into June, I, I think we saw at one point, at least the suppliers that we talked to in Southern California, uh, they either didn't have xenon to sell or it was it was around $30,000 a kilogram. That price has come down a little bit. I think it, it's still on the order of $20,000 a kilogram, but that's a problem. If you're building a, a large constellation of small satellites and you're paying $20,000 per kilogram for your fuel, mm -hmm. You know, you know your economics, <laughs> your return on investment is much more difficult if you, if the cost of your fuel is more expensive than your satellite, which it can be in in some cases depending on how much fuel you need. So for us, iodine is interesting because it's it's next door neighbors on the periodic table with xenon, so it's a heavy molecule. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about iodine is it, it stores as a solid, so you don't have to compress it as a gas to be able to store enough to be to be meaningful. It actually stores about three times more densely than xenon. Um, so from a from a system design standpoint, that's really interesting because in the same unit volume, I can get three times as much fuel as I can with xenon. And then if I heat it up, it becomes a gas, and then I can feed that into my RF thruster and generate thrust. So it's 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 quite an interesting development. And fortunate, uh, we've been fortunate to work with Air Force Research Lab um, on a, a phase two SBIR to get to the point where we're able to store and flow Z, uh, 
iodine in our vacuum chamber, understand how to work with it. And the next development that we're working on in 2023 is making that into our next generation Maxwell product. So we'll use very much the same architecture that we use today. The product will look very similar to our Maxwell Block 2 engine, but instead of a noble gas, a highly compressed noble gas, we'll have iodine. Um, and then our customers will have the advantage of having, you know, three times as much fuel in the same volume. And they'll be paying about $150 per kilogram of iodine versus tens of thousands, in some cases, $20,000 for xenon. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. And the supply chain for iodine, um, we can get it all here in the U.S. In fact, the state of Oklahoma produces pretty much all the iodine that the U.S. produces. Um, and it's it's quite abundant uh, in terms of the volumes that you would need for you know use as a propellant for spacecraft. Abundant and inexpensive. Those are two great things. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so what else is innovative about your Maxwell line of thrusters? What makes them special? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it's, again, when you get into small spacecraft, it's all about size, weight, and power. So our first product, we called Maxwell Block 1, um, our customer basically gave us the challenge of, if you can build a propulsion system that fits in this very small volume, you know, we'll use it. Um, so that first product was optimized around, let's do everything as small as possible. And as far as we can tell, we created the world's first uh, and smallest all-in-one 500-watt plasma propulsion system. So everything was contained in, in a very small volume, about the size of a toaster. Mm. The, next, the next product that we've been delivering this year is our Block 2 product. Um, and that is a very also very small system. But what, what we found with customers, uh, they some in some cases, they needed more propellant for different types of missions or for more orbit raising. So this architecture is much more flexible in that we can compress it all together to fit into a small volume or we can disaggregate it uh, because what you find when you talk to satellite manufacturers is every satellite is a snowflake in that the, the designs are very different, right? The, you right. Know, no one, these, these things all don't look alike. They're all very, very different. So you have to be flexible in terms of how you can configure the system to fit inside of a different customer's spacecraft. So that's really the change with, with our Block 2 pro product. Um, and, and it also carries our second generation thruster, uh, which is uh, over 60% higher performing in both thrust and ISP than our first generation thruster. And so like I said earlier in, in the interview, we're just getting started with the optimization of this technology, the RF thruster technology, and that's really the exciting part. You know, it occurs to me because we're talking a lot these days about on-orbit refueling and on-orbit servicing of satellites. What does use the use of, of a fuel like iodine mean in that market the, to be able to uh, to service the satellites so they have a longer service life. Yeah, I mean, the you know, I, I know this is a little bit of a, a repeat. The exciting thing about something like iodine is that you can store just that much more in the same unit volume. So you may not need, uh, you know, depending on your mission lifetime and the size of your spacecraft, you may not necessarily need to refuel um, because you've got enough propellant on board. However, the other exciting thing is, you know, you could actually have, you could conceive of these like, you know, these, these refueling modules that you basically could affix to a spacecraft that would have, you know, let's say extra iodine in them um, that would just, you know, the, the, the spacecraft could use that as its, you know, next next stage of fuel. Uh, and then there's other uh, there's other propellants um, that we work with that, you know, that are candidates for refueling. I know, I know, you know, for companies like uh, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed, for example, they're looking at the, the potential to work with companies like OrbitFab to do like hydrazine refueling in orbit. Uh, and because, uh, you know, our thruster, like I said, is propellant agnostic uh, and unsurprisingly, um, you know, uh, the Ascent Green propellant actually shares a lot of the same 
chemical constituents to as hydrazine. So we could we could work with hydrazine. Um, we of course want to do that with a partner and do it very safely. But you know if if the if the market demands refueling with a particular type of propellant, um, you know, our architecture will allow for that in the sense that, you know, we're not, we're not wedded to one propellant to make our system work, which I think is the ultimate flexibility that the RF thruster architecture offers. Former NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine is on your board of directors. Why is it important to have someone like him in a leadership role from a commercial space company? And tell us a little bit more about the rest of your team. Yeah, uh, you know, Jim is Jim was a a very uh, good NASA administrator, and I would say that independent of whether or not he was on our board, you know he did a lot of really exciting things at NASA, which was to get more commercial companies involved. Right, you have a lot of commercial companies working with NASA on the Artemis program. You have the Lunar Lander program, where you have multiple private companies that are looking to build landers and prove those out by landing on the moon. Um, so I think he's been very friendly and very helpful to the private ecosystem of space companies and smaller space companies. So not just the legacy primes, but also a lot of these newer space companies that are starting to gain traction. Um, and I think, you know, Jim also, before he was a NASA administrator, also was a Congress congressman. Mm -hmm. He worked on the, the Armed Services Committee. So he also understands, you know, kind of the need for security in the supply chain for the Space Force and all of the spacecraft that they need to build and everything that goes into that. And so when I was able to meet with him and, and showed him the developments we were working on, it really resonated. You know, why, why, why would he care about using iodine as a fuel? Well, that allows you to have a very secure supply chain that is domestically based, which is important for national security. And then why would he, you know, why would we want to work with um, uh, an architecture like multimode, well, he he was able to see the advantages of multimode, and that you know that's kind of like the holy grail of propulsion systems. All the things you could do, both on the the defense and the science side, with a multimode capable spacecraft. Um, so I think he saw the value in what we're doing, and and uh, to his credit, you know, oftentimes you get board members that you know they they come to the quarterly meeting and then you, you don't see or hear from them again until the next <laughs> quarterly meeting yeah. uh, but he's been very active uh, talking about phase 4 which has been real helpful to us uh, and i think it's you know it's because he understands the value of what we're doing um and the, the rest of our team you know we're we're still a, a relatively small and scrappy bunch we're still only about 30 people um, we have, you know, we have a really unique uh, blend of folks on the engineering side. Like I said, our uh, the folks that architected the core technology uh, are plasma physicists that come from outside of aerospace, and I think really a, their different perspective allowed us to implement the RF uh, propulsion technology in a in a different way that actually makes it work and reliably work well. Um, and then we have a, you know, given that we're in Southern California, we have people who come from all different types of aerospace companies. We have folks that come from traditional companies like uh, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And then we have folks that come from other space startups like SpaceX, like Rocket Lab, like Virgin Orbit. So it's a really exciting collection. And, you know, one of the benefits um, outside of uh, good winter weather of being in Southern California, <laughs> there's a very rich talent pool of folks on the aerospace side. And, and a lot of people that want to make a difference in space. Right. Like the exciting thing about working with a space startup is, you know, you could build something and then, you know, a few months later, it's in space. And that I think for right. a lot of people is inspiring rather than build something maybe five years later, it might be in space. So um, <laughs> the, the startup space, uh, you know, isn't for everyone, but I think for a certain type of folks that want to make a difference in space, it's, it's really compelling. 
Although I understand from Mike, it was a little chilly out in San Diego this morning. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, everyone in everyone in Southern California this week is wearing their, um, you know, their winter gear, even though it's still around fifty to sixty degrees. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like sounds like us here in Florida too. So it's yeah. about fifty degrees, and my wife pulls out her gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a cold climate, but that's okay. Um, we're just about out of time, Bo, but I want you to take just a moment, if you would, and and kind of gaze into your crystal ball. I had ten to fifteen years and tell us what you see coming in space commerce yeah you know I, I it's it's really interesting how things change so fast um you know when i when i first joined the company about four years ago um and we were raising our series a i would talk to investors and they would say i i just don't see the space ecosystem being that big it's not a venture market and now that that is not a question right like what's happening just in low earth orbit is massive right just the number mm -hmm. of satellites the number of missions the number of companies that are able to to show value there and now we're starting to see kind of the the first shift outside side of low earth orbit into like cislunar space right like the artemis mission demonstrated that but also there's you know there's companies now that are just focused on providing services outside of leo so i think if you look forward you know ten, five to ten years you're going to see um, a very active space economy not just in low earth orbit but also in geo but and also further out in the cislunar space um, so that's the exciting thing is you know it's one of those things where you can't you can't necessarily imagine what will happen but probably you know you could imagine some pretty fanciful things like on-orbit refueling, on-orbit servicing. Those things, I think, will all be up and running within a decade, and that's that's quite exciting to see. Bo Jarvis is the CEO of Satellite Thruster Company Phase 4. Bo, thanks for your time today. No problem. It was good to chat with you, Tom. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra Podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.